So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier hey. of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident. confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governs do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program on this, the 13th day of April in the year 2013. I am your host, Yael Asovsky, coming to you from Das Freiheit Studio in Vienna, Austria, right in the heart of the United States of Europe. We're broadcasting on Liberty Radio Network and on the No Agenda stream. And I welcome you all to the program. You can check out the links over there at libertyinexile.com. And this is a, a special, special broadcast as I do have a guest. I have Mart van der Leer of TheRawReport.org and he's coming to us from Merkik, the Netherlands. So we're here with the writer, editor, entrepreneur, Mart van der Leer, and he is here to talk to us a little bit about the United States of Europe, a subject he knows a great deal about. Uh, he has an amazing website over there, therawreport.org. So, Mart, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. All right, so let's uh, get a little bit into your articles that you've been writing lately, and obviously I love the way that... Uh, you put your words together and sort of the frankness of it all. And uh, the one that I, I want to point people to right away is, uh, I guess, the first article that I read of yours. It's titled, The European Union, Bailing Out Banks, Politicians, While Sticking It to the People. And I, uh, I love the fact that you put in the little timetable of all the bailouts that have gone on throughout the European Union in the last few years, and you give a very concise documentation of exactly how much it was, how it was funded, uh, maybe who's next. I, I think it's it's a very good perspective to, to show the people. So I guess, uh, you know, as a European citizen yourself, as they would like you to be, uh, you are the one who will have to pay these bills in the future unless you, you skip town. But i got to say, just uh, give us a little bit resume of, uh, I don't know, of what you see going on on your home continent, where actually what's going on in the Netherlands, where you're from, any uh, perspective that you can bring to that. Well, I think basically what's going on is that, um, you know, we got into this system that we call the European Union and, um, you know, all of these southern countries that, you know, you could you could argue probably shouldn't have been allowed into it. Um, you know, they did get into it and or, or I should say they were, they were invited in. You know, it's not like I, I don't like to, you know, sometimes people kind of paint this picture of kind of north versus south kind of thing. And and that, to me, is really not what it is. You know, I mean, these um, bureaucrats in Brussels 
you know, they, they just love to expand their power, and the more countries that they have under their control, the better it is, you know, in, in, their, in their view anyway. So, you know, basically, um, they helped, for example, Goldman Sachs helped, um, helped Greece fiddle the figures to kind of, you know, not kind of, to get into the European Union and um, into the euro specifically. And um, so, you know, that's kind of how it happens. They all kind of buddy up and, um, you know, kind of distribute the power. So, Okay, and I guess uh, for, I've heard a lot of figures cited. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly how, how it's really calculated, but it's anywhere from 50 to 70% of all new laws that are created uh, now anywhere on the European continent are created by the European Commission. They're not done in national parliaments anymore. So it's like there are all these laws and new rules that are coming out that people have to follow that they necessarily never elected anyone to write. Right, right, exactly. And, and then the thing that I think a lot of people don't even know or, or realize is that the European Commission is unelected, totally unelected. And so, you know, you have the European Parliament, and people think that that's where, you know, where it all happens. But it's not really, because the European Parliament just has a symbolic role. Um, and that's kind of what I explained in um, another article um, entitled something about the, the European Soviet Union is what I like to call it. And the reason I call it that is exactly because of that fact. You know, the European Parliament is there, and it is elected... Um, not even directly, but indirectly, um, at least elected. But really all it does is, you know, give advice to the European Commission. And the, the European Commission has no, um, you know, it doesn't have to follow that advice. You know, it can just, you know, throw it in the wind if it wants to. So basically it can do whatever it wants, um, you know, being an unelected body. So that's why I compared to the uh, to the Soviet Union where you had this same kind of illusion of, you know, you have these elected representatives and, you know, they make the rules for you, but, you know, at least they're elected. Yeah, and, and here in the city where I am in Vienna, there's always a lot of talk about the European Union and uh, probably all the good things, of course, because all the... Actually, the European Parliament sponsors a lot of these little uh, initiatives, uh, agenda-setting forums where people come and talk about how great the EU is. And a recent one that I went to, uh, I thought was going to be the complete opposite, had a speaker from Slovenia talking about how uh, self-determination was going to be the wave of the future. And, uh, of course, when I went to go talk there, it was a completely theoretical sort of how it works maybe in your own country. And I asked just the question, how can any country in Europe be talking about self-determination when they're ruled by the central governing authority in Brussels? And, yeah, well, exactly. And, exactly. and really the way they look at it is, well, you know, we wanted to be in the EU. We all voted to be in the EU. Did you vote to be in the EU, by the way, Mark? I did not, not at all, no. And actually there, there were several, several referendums here um, well, not just here, but I mean across Europe. Um, you know, the Dutch people voted against the European Constitution, which eventually still got passed as a treaty. You know, that's just the way they do it. You know, if you say no, all right, we'll kind of you know amend it and kind of make sure that you don't have to. You know, we don't have to do the referendum again because we probably we know that you'll probably say no again. So what we'll just do is make this Lisbon Treaty. And, which is basically the, the constitution, the original constitution, without, you know, things like a flag. And, I mean, there's still a flag, but um, what was it? Like, like, a, An like a supranational anthem or something? Exactly. So, 
you know, it's it's basically the same thing. And even um, even proponents of this uh, Lisbon Treaty and you know, like let's say European Union enthusiasts, they admit to this. They say that yeah, it's you know, it's, it was basically the same thing. It's just now it's a treaty, and so we don't have to you know get your we don't have to go to the people and ask them, hey, what do you think? Yeah, and I think the last one, uh, of course, they're they're talking about a brand new treaty now, and I think that that was the that was the big news. I got I guess about a year ago when they were talking about new ways to set up this so-called European stability mechanism. And, right. and I've, I've linked to this in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. People can go look at it. And what we're talking about here is basically a permanent, and I, I'm going to use the, your, you know, the title of your article here, we're talking about a permanent solution, ladies and gentlemen, to no. banks not having enough money so that the politicians and the banksters can stick it to the people. And this is will automatically basically give banks that are quote in trouble just billions of euros outright obviously you know this is something that is automatically triggered and this is so-called capitalization as they call it which is you know just uh, it's a way of saying we're stealing money from you all the people and we're giving it to the banks the people who are supposed to guard the money in our society Right, yeah, and I guess you know if they're if they're going to do that, it's it's kind of a, a way of, like you say, transferring the money of the people to these to these banks or, or governments or whoever in trouble, and basically you know they might not even tell us about it, you know, because it's it's automatic. So why would they tell us about it? You know, it's kind of like, you know, they they just are are they just going to print money? And just hand it to the banks whenever they're in trouble. I mean, like one of the things I mentioned in my article, the ar the article that you were just referring to, was that in November 2012, Spain borrowed 37 billion euros to restructure four of its weakest banks. Well, maybe in the future, if they do that, we won't even know about it. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I was on the website of the European Stability Mechanism this morning, and uh, just kind of went there and looked at uh, the ESM's first operation, recapitalization of Spanish banking sector. And I, I haven't really heard about this in the news, but apparently there was a disbursement to Spain of about uh, $2 billion just kind of given out. Uh, obviously, this did not make the headlines, but uh, if you go on your uh, handy-dandy EU websites, you can find out that billions of dollars that obviously nobody has. I mean, is there any single country in the European Union that is not indebted right now? I mean, not as far as I'm aware. Um, you know, if you look at all the, um, uh, especially you know the the troubled countries, the so-called pigs countries, but you know even even uh, countries, you know the richer countries like um, like Germany and the Netherlands, are also in debt. You know, I mean, all countries are in debt. That's kind of uh, you know how the system works. Did you read that article? By the way, it was in Der Spiegel. Uh, it was talking about how the Netherlands is now the most indebted country in all of Europe, or actually in the Eurozone. Did you see that by any chance? I did see the headline. I didn't get time to read the article, actually, but I'll definitely go back and read that. So one thing that I always have to wonder, though, is, you know, people think of the Netherlands and they think, uh, well, this is a place that obviously loves Europe and people are, are just gung-ho for this whole project. They love the fact that we're talking about a uh, single European identity. I mean, from from your own travels, from uh, speaking to your friends, your family. I mean, what, what's the sort of your report on the ground of how people are reacting to? I mean, we like to view this as an entire crisis of the project. For a lot of people, it's just you right. know a crisis of the moment. But how are people reacting to this in general? 
Well, I would say that, unfortunately, a lot of people are still in favor of, of the European Union as it is. And, and, and one of the things that, that politicians do very skillfully is they'll use the terms European Union and Europe interchangeably. And so basically what they're implying is that if you're anti-European Union, you're anti-Europe, which is like, you know, being anti-North Pole or, you know, it's, I mean, it's a continent. You can't be anti-Europe, you know. And so that's – in kind of phrasing it like that, what they're doing, in my opinion, is, you know, try to make people, you know, basically ridicule people that are anti-European Union. Yeah, and I think uh, that's why uh, the parliamentarian uh, Daniel Hannan, who's the uh, European – I think he's in the European Parliament from Britain. He always writes uh, in the Telegraph, and he makes the point of saying, look, I love Europe. I love the culture. I love the languages. I just cannot stand this entire European project. Right, right, exactly. I definitely agree with that. And I would add to that, you know, I love Europe too, you know, and there's so much diversity, and that's one of the things I love. And, it, you know, it's great to travel, and it's, I think it's a, it's a good place to live, at least now, you know, now that they haven't wrecked the place yet. But... You know, that's that's one of the things that I think that I think makes it unique is that it's so diverse. You know, and so you can't compare Finland to Portugal, or or the Netherlands to Greece. You know, and that go, that goes for you know the social aspect, the economic aspect, political. You know, you name it. And I think for me, that's one of the main reasons not to have a European Union. And I want to hit on your your article about austerity in a little bit, but I, I still have to talk about this because it, it's so interesting to me. Is, and the reason that I, I'm, I'm normally talking about the EU a great deal, which a lot of people will find very, uh, I guess, odd because I'm a, a Canadian uh, trying right. to understand it. But I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's essential. And I think in some ways we can talk about Europe and the way Europe exists today, and there are good things. Now, there are a lot of people who are very opposed to immigration cross-border. I mean, the, we've spoken about it before. We think that's probably one of the greatest, greatest barriers to, to innovation and prosperity today are all these – arbitrary lines that we put in the sand that make it to where you can't cross the ocean and go work without getting permission from the government, and I can't stay here past a certain deadline without uh, getting permission from the government. This entire idea of free movement of people, you would argue that'd probably be a good facet, but the way that I understand it, that's part of Schengen. That's not necessarily the European Union, is it? Exactly. No, I, I totally agree with you, and, and I think that's a great thing. You know, people being able to able to travel freely, and you know, as long as you're not living off of the welfare, um, the welfare system, you know, whatever, you know, go wherever you want, and you know, do your thing. But and and that's, you know, that that kind of ties into to my problem with the system is not immigration, it's the welfare system, and you know, the way that's set up. Obviously, you know, if you're going to go to another country and not have a job and just kind of live off the, you know, so far as that possible, as that is possible, um, you know, live off of welfare and, you know, and so forth, you know, that's obviously not a good thing. And that, you know, obviously the taxpayers there are on the hook for it. But, um, yeah, I definitely agree with you that the, you know, the immigration part is a good thing for sure. And you I, know, if it wasn't for the welfare state. Yeah, that's true. And uh, you uh, write very good articles to that effect. And obviously people can find your articles at therawreport.org. And I, I do want to stick to the four freedoms. As far as I remember, that uh, was included in the Treaty of Rome, sort of like an ideal for what the future could be. And 
you know, we, we're sort of living through that, and we're seeing that when every single country basically has the power to control their own money taken out from under them, and now it's controlled by one single central bank. One, sing, I mean, central banks are bad enough, but to think that you have one huge central bank, I mean, imagine the financial calamity if there was but one entire huge central bank across the world. I mean, it's impossible. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and you know, we've we've already seen the you know the mayhem that that that, that has caused in the European Union, and you know because and the euro specifically, um, you know that's what really, in my opinion, really facilitated this. And, and I you know obviously elaborate on that on my blog. Um, that's what really facilitated this this whole. Um, you know, party that that which it was initially. You know, I mean, the Germans were exporting more BMWs to Greece and, and Spain and all of these countries, and they thought it was great. And and all of you know the Greeks and, and the Spanish and the Italians, you know, they they were, you know, they were fine with you know having more luxury. And you know, obviously it turned out to be a bubble, but you know everybody was happy. And I kind of. Um, um, in one of my articles, I, I compared it to a party where, you know, everybody gets drunk and, you know, it's the best party ever. But then, you know, the next morning you wake up and you're like, what happened? And, and you know, you see all of the damage and, you know, to the house or wherever you were. And, you know, you find out that there were or realize that there were people there, you know, some shady characters that probably shouldn't have been there. And, you know, now, now you're stuck with all of this, um, you know, with all of these costs for, you know, repairing the damage and, and so forth. Oh, my God, that was last night. I, I think <laughs> another point that I, I want to get to with this is that, you know, I'm always trying to talk to, of course, younger people. I think older people, they might be skeptical in some way, but the number one reason that most people have for supporting the EU and the reason they state, and of course politicians exploit this endlessly, is this entire fact that it's kept us out of war. We've had peace in Europe, which I, I you know, I don't really, I, I don't agree with that. But again, people are so fixated upon it. And I guess if you are in power and you know that people are scared of war, if you can just bring this dark cloud over it and say, well, if we do not have the European Union, there will be all-out war. And you have a, a point in, in one of your articles where you write about that, you know, the way that we have the system going on now and the economic calamity that's happening and the discrepancies between the nation, this is actually causing even more hostility. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the, the growing hatred, uh, you know, of immigrants, like you, you were just referring to, you know, intolerance towards immigrants, we have these, uh, I remember reading a couple of weeks ago about the flaring up of anti-Semitism in countries like Hungary. You know, we have uh, the German chancellor being portrayed as Hitler by Greek protesters when she goes to Athens. And, you know, I mean, there, there's countless examples of, you know, that you can point to where it's obviously not leading to, you know, some sort of, you know, European, I don't know, you know, party where... European dream, man. Right, exactly. The, the European dream where, you know, everybody comes together and sings Kumbaya, you know? It's, it's just not, that's just not not what's going on right now. Yeah, and for a lot of people who, I guess, aren't really, <clears throat> you know, don't, they don't really see the problems with it. And I, I guess if you are in a so-called opinion maker which uh, obviously I'm not in there. <laughs> I'm not right up in the parliament. I'm not, uh, you know, right on the top of the news media every single night. But, you know, there's still a lot of people who are skeptical. But for those who aren't, 
you know, how do we, how can you convince people or how can you talk to people who, whenever they see any problem in the cracking of the foundations of the EU, somehow have this belief that what we need to do is strengthen it? I mean, how do you talk to people or how do you engage with people who sort of see it that way? And it's the same, it doesn't have to be the European Union. It can be the democracy and freedom in the United States of America. It can be uh, free, freedom in your own country. How do you convince people that the system is the problem and not just a law that has not yet been created? Well, you know, to be honest, I think there's a... Um... There are people that you just can't convince. They just, you know, they won't listen to you and, you know, just kind of have to, uh, you know, let them go and be like, all right, whatever. But, you know, for, for some people, I think, you know, I've been listening to, um, to Stefan Molyneux's uh, podcast recently. And one of the things that he points out that really stuck with me was that we have to win the moral argument. You know, I mean... You know, he talks about, you know, von Mises writing back in, in what, the 20s, 30s, all these articles about, you know, the free market is so much better than what we, what we have right now, you know, and, and that was back in the 20s. I mean, <laughs> just, you know, just compare that to, to what we have going on now, um, you know, and all of that stuff, obviously it's true. But it's it's something that I think for a lot of people is is kind of out there. It's it's kind of hard to understand exactly how it works, and they don't take the time or they don't have the interest to actually you know dig into that and you know find out you know what you know who's right. Um, so I, I think that's um, you know what what Stefan Molyneux was arguing or or is arguing is that we should you know tell people that the moral um, that the that we are morally right in you know in demanding freedom and you know saying that basically you know these governments you know government is force i mean you know that's what it comes down to government is coercion and you know if we want freedom then what is the proper role of government now i personally believe you know the proper role of government is you know zero it's like you know just get out of our lives and you know we can fix everything but, um, you know, we, we can debate, but, uh, debate that all day. And, you know, I think that was one of the very interesting things, um, you know, going on at the European Students for Liberty Conference was the minarchy versus anarchy kind of debate. But, you know, um, getting back to what you were saying, um, I think that's where we're, you know, where we have to take the debate. You know, go to the – and I think, you know, the moral part, and I think – that's, um, you know, one of the reasons why I pointed that out in my article and why I consistently call it the European Soviet Union because people, you know, first people kind of chuckle and they're like, okay, European Soviet Union, whatever. But then, you know, sometimes they get curious and they ask me, well, why do you call it the European Soviet Union? And I explain to them, you know, what I just explained, that the European Parliament is symbolic, the European Commission is actually running the show, and they're totally unelected. And that most of the time makes people go, hmm, I didn't know that. You know, and so... That might be an inroad for them, but generally, I really agree with uh, with Stefan Molyneux that you know we should we should really um, emphasize the moral um, debate, you know, the moral argument, our moral argument. Yeah, no, I, and I agree a hundred percent. And I think for a lot of different people, it's just the fact that people are going to 
basically interpret the world completely differently. You know, whereas they see banks failing, they believe it's because there aren't enough rules or because there aren't enough regulators who are minding the bankers and all. Right. I mean, right. we're we're dealing with a system where money is is but an illusion, and that's why it's been so fun and interesting to watch Bitcoin over these last few weeks because you get all these people who want to attack it, who of course say, well, you know, it has no value. Right, as if the euro and the dollar are just <laughs> yeah. the number one things that are holding up the world. I mean, it has no intrinsic value. You can't buy. I mean, come on. And we see the people who also go out there and say that uh, you know drug dealers are, are running around with Bitcoin and they're buying arms. I mean, isn't that the system we already have now? Isn't that isn't that what what's already happening? Where you have guns that are flooding into places like like Syria, like Libya, like Mali, backed by Western governments in order to try to win some sort of civil war, steal the resources, and, and try to continue living on, basically sucking the health out of the world? Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like, you can see it in, you, you know, I, I think it was last month, I, I read an article about Wells Fargo. It came out that they actually laundered um, drug money of Mexican gangs, and this came out and nobody got in trouble. Um, you know, the, the U.S. government had a program or an operation called Operation Fast and Furious where they, they ship guns to Mexican drug gangs in Mexico. And, you know, obviously they had all sorts of excuses why they were doing this. But, you know, nobody got in trouble. No, and of course there, not. And, there's, and there are so many examples of this where, you know, the thing, things happen like that and nobody gets in trouble. Well, because the rules and, don't apply to the people who sit atop the high thrones. Don't you understand that? Well, no, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, they, you know, they can make laws all day, but, you know, they'll make the law say whatever they want it to say. You know, and, and getting back to your point about regulation, um, I was just listening to the Peter Schiff show the other day, and this economist, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, came on, wh wh whom I really ex respect, by the way. But, you know, I, I think he's – the title of his new book was something like um, The Failure of Laissez-Faire, you know, and whatever. Uh, I, I forgot the subtitle, but that was the title. And he was arguing that, well, you know, we had all this deregulation and look where it got us. You know, we got this huge banking crisis, you know, this financial crisis in, in you know, 07, 08, whatever. And, you know, it's only gotten us into this terrible mess. And what Peter Schiff was saying, which I agree with, was, well, we, you know, we had the we had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We had the FDIC, um, you know, securing or, or guaranteeing all these deposits. And, and we have the same here, of course, at least to an extent. You know, we thought so and, until the whole Cyprus thing happened. But, you know, like when you have all of that going on and the government, the, excuse me, the banks can just take all of these risks and basically they don't really run any risk because if they if they fail, they, they get bailed out by the government, which is actually what recently happened in the Netherlands as well. Um, the third bank that got bailed out just maybe two months ago or, or oh, less. Wow. And I mean, yeah, and that's the point is that this stuff is going on in every individual country. And the thing is, is that the intellectual elite or the educated people and I mean, if you I, I recently reread uh, Hayek's uh, Intellectuals and Socialism, and he makes the point that the people who are, you know, up and coming today, the people who are sort of 
uh, taking over academia will in 20, 30 years time influence the next generation and that will sort of be the majority economic view and standard. And he was sort of making that point saying that socialism, socialism was going to win. I mean, now you can sort of look and see, you know, growing numbers of, uh, you know, more pro-liberty uh, economics uh, professions, uh, a lot more uh, departments, you know, sort of flailing up. But the point that I want to make is that the business elite, especially in, in the U.S. and the, in Great Britain, where I read a lot of the media, but also in France, you sort of see them in this mindset to where they're kind of sold on this idea. I mean, these are the entrepreneurs. These, these are the creative people. They're supposed to be entrepreneurial and they're supposed to be the ones who are bringing us innovation, but they're kind of locked into this system too. They believe that, well, you know, of course the banks are there, you know, to provide a service. And then if they go bust, well, that's what the government's there for. And everybody bails us out and that's just how it goes. And you read the plain language of articles in Financial Times or even Der Spiegel or a lot of stuff happening in Les Actualités in France. And it's as if, you know, they know that, this is the best system, and I, I just I cannot believe that people who are otherwise so intelligent would fall into this trap. Yeah, I agree, and, and you know, I think for, for those people, you know, I don't like to say it, but for those people, the only thing that can save them, you know, in terms of you know convincing them that this system really wasn't sustainable, is a total meltdown. I mean, you know, that's the only thing that's going to get them around to the fact that, you know, all this money that we've been pumping into the system was just created out of thin air. You know, it was all digits on a computer, and it, it, it was never really there, there to begin with. And, you know, I think that's the only thing that's really going to, you know, convince them is prob probably when it's too late. So you think there's going to be a meltdown coming, like, soon? Well, I don't know about soon. I mean, I guess it depends what you call soon, but, you know, I, I do see it happening sooner, sooner or later. I mean, you know, you never know what kind of, you know, tricks they're, they're going to pull to, you know, keep the, the Ponzi scheme going. But, you know, I think eventually, definitely, we're, we're going to see um, we're going to see a meltdown. Then, you know, the thing is that you never know what their response is going to be and how long they're going to be able to keep the illusion going. I mean, you know, if you look at the, and this is one of the things also that, coming back to Peter Schiff, what, what he talks about a lot is, you know, people will congratulate him sometimes on predicting the housing bubble and all that stuff, and he'll say, well, yeah, but the real crash is still coming, you know? Like, what I predicted sort of happened, but then they propped up the system, you know, they being the Fed, and, you know, and this obviously also applies to the European Union. So the real crash is still coming, and I, I believe that. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. There's a, a very good documentary I saw, again, very recently by Adam Curtis. It's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I think it was on BBC, and he's sort of a, a left kind of guy. You know, actually, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really know what you call people who are uh, progressive. I don't really like saying the left. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really what, – what's your attitude on that? Do you call people left? Do you say that? Progressives? How do you say it? Socialist? Um – well, you know, it kind of depends. I'm not really a fan of the, you know, the left-right paradigm. I try to explain to people, you know, why it really doesn't matter because it's, you know, it's kind of like the left will say, well, you know, we want you to be free to have an abortion. But then at the same time, we don't want you to be free to keep, um, you know, the fruits of your own labor. Yeah, and, so just, okay. and, and on the right, they will say, you know, in the, in, the, in the situation of the United States, for example, they will say, well, we want you, at least sort of, to, you know, have your guns. But then at the same time, you know, we don't think that, um, 
you know, we think that banks and you know you know like big corporations should run the show and you don't really have a say you know like okay. so so it you know they're they're sort of advocating some freedoms and but you know the biggest the, the most important part to me is that both of them are also advocating the restriction of freedom so wow. you know it's kind of a well not kind of it's it's a false paradigm in my opinion but then at the same time you know it it means something to people you know when you say lefties people kind of know what you what you mean so sometimes i will still use those terms but uh, generally i don't really like them yeah okay that, that's sort of what, what i thought as well and it, obviously it's the same as uh, people who love these european football clubs you know if you start talking about their team they'll, they'll get all emotional but right. the point I wanted to make is just that uh, yeah, Adam Curtis, who BBC sort of a left of center guy, he makes the point in his documentary that we've relied so much on technology and computers, and we just assume that you know this entire fractional reserve banking system will just go on forever, and all it's doing inevitably is putting off probably the biggest crash uh, that you know we've ever seen as far as finance is going. And I think uh, you're making the point of how much debt there is and all this money that's printed out of thin air. You know, the point of it is most of this money does not exist, uh, has never existed, and people are indebted to everyone else. And really, what what really can we have as an end other than complete bankruptcy, complete runs on the banks, prices going through the roofs? I mean, this might be 10, 15, 30, 100 years down the road, but, uh, you know, as you're saying and as you're predicting, man, this could be pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and you know, coming back to the, you know, the, the so-called lefties, I, I think there's actually a lot that we, as libertarians, as people that love freedom, have in common with those people. You know, obviously, you know, we don't support the, you know, the the state that they um, support in terms of, you know, taking from some people to give it to other people, but you know, in terms of individual freedoms, you know, like you know, being against the police state and, and things like that, I think we have a lot in common with them, and. You you know, like sometimes you'll kind of be disappointed. Um, for example, there's an Australian documentary maker called uh, John Pilger, and um, yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Oh, you know him? Okay, cool. So, you know, the other day, I, I really love his documentaries. You know, because he covers some of the stuff that you will never see in the mainstream media. You know, his last um, his last documentary, at least as far as I know. Um, was titled something like, um, you know, the, the War You Don't See. Actually, that was the title, The War You Don't See. And, you know, it, obviously it talks about the, you know, the civilian lives that are being lost, you know, because of these wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, all over the place. And I think that's very, very important to highlight. But then, you know, the other day I see a, a video of him at some Karl Marx, Karl Marx um, gathering somewhere in Australia. And I'm like, okay, you know, so... It's kind of a it's kind of a shame when when you see that, but no, I mean you got you got to pick your coalitions, and obviously the the point I guess of the philosophy is that people are really allowed to believe what they want. It's just not about applying force. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in, in a totally you know libertarian free world, definitely you know I, I support everyone's freedom to do whatever he likes. You know, so long as he doesn't infringe on my freedom to do whatever I like. You know. Yeah, that's true. And for especially going to college campuses in the U.S. and Canada and now in Europe, believe me, everybody is opposed to this point of view as far as I can tell. You know, maybe you've had a different experience and, you know, you've traveled throughout the middle of America, so maybe you've probably seen it a little differently. But, you know, these ideas, people are very hostile to them. When you, you talk about the fact that there there shouldn't be deposit insurance or there shouldn't be 
you know, a, a government-managed post office, for example, or a government-managed uh, welfare, you know, as you write about in your article, yeah. people are very hostile to these ideas. They don't, they cannot conceive of a, a world where this would be, you know, the reality. They, they're just too stuck in this mindset. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that kind of brings me back to, you know, emphasizing the moral uh, part of the argument is, um, you know, because it, you're right, people see it as a threat, you know, people think, you know, basically, you know, you're going to take their goodies away, and, and they don't like that, you know, no, nobody likes that. So I think what, again, what we have to emphasize there is the moral argument that, hey, it, it's not okay for you to, you know, kill people, so why is it okay for a soldier to kill people? You know, it's not okay for you to steal from from other people, so why is it okay for the government to steal, steal from people? You know, so... You know, just kind of keep emphasizing that moral argument that why is it okay for some people but not okay for other people. I think that's very important. I think that's, you know, that's, that, that's the only thing, in my opinion, that might turn people around, you know, people that think like that, that, that see liberty as a threat. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about your website. You got any new subjects you're going to talk about or projects? Uh, tell us how it's going with that. Yeah, well, after my last article that, that you just mentioned about austerity or, or the myth of austerity, um, I, you know, what I figured was that, okay, so now, you know, those the people that have actually read that article know that, okay, so there's not really austerity going on, at least not, you know, in some countries, you know, like Greece, yeah, they reduce spending by, by less than 17%, you know, so I guess it's a start, you know, as I say in the article, but, you know, it's hardly impressive. But, you know, so, so then after you read that, you might wonder, okay, but then what is going on? Because we are reading all of these articles about, you know, people suffering, and then where does that come from? Like, you know, if it's not because the government's our savior, but now, you know, it has to cut back, so we're all, you know, we're all screwed, then what is going on? And so that's what my next article is going to focus on, is what is going on, and basically it's taxes, you know, they're just raising taxes. For example, here VAT went up in the Netherlands, and you know, all sorts of other taxes went up. You know, like um, you know, basically the same argument of the broadest broadest shoulders have to, um, you know, carry the the biggest weight and and that sort of thing. And you know, so that's what's really hurting people is all these taxes going up. But in the meantime, the government here and, you know, across Europe, except for some of the, you know, the most troubled countries, they are using the additional tax income to fund their extra spending. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a spiral because, you know, if they were actually cutting and actually letting some of those resources, you know, flow back into the private system, the, the private sector – Obviously, that would be great, but that's not what they're doing. And so, what they're gonna, what we're gonna see, I think, is kind of the same as in, um, as in, as in the United States, where you know you have states like California, New York, where taxes are going up, and then you know companies leave, and you know there's a capital flight to states like Texas, where you know taxes are a lot lower, and so you know the tax base just get just keeps getting smaller and smaller and it's not just because people are leaving but it's also because some people just can't afford you know their their lifestyle that they used to have because of all these higher taxes and so some of these people are just gonna 
um, you know, in, instead of trying to pull the wagon, they're going to jump in the wagon and be like, all right, let the rest pull. You know, I, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's just too too hard. And, you know, I might as well just live off of welfare. You know, and well, I see, yeah, I see I, that. I see that here among friends and relatives. You know, not that everybody's like, whatever, I'm, I'm just going to live off of welfare. But those that do lose their job, they're not really all that worried. They're like, oh, you know, it's kind of a paid vacation. It's It's kind of cool, you know? And for a lot of people, you're actually getting paid more on welfare than you would be if you actually, you know, had a wage. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Which definitely is warping the incentives. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you want to, I'll point people there and also to your Twitter page, which you're, you're just getting a hold of. Uh, your handle is at Mart Libertarian. And, of course, I'll put that in the show notes at libertyandexile.com. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you a little bit about uh, Europe, the euro, life and freedom here and across the world so mart uh, thanks so much for coming on yeah pleasure is all mine thank you all right that is mart van der Leer, and uh, he's coming to us from the netherlands what city are you in by the way um i'm close to i'm about a half hour from amsterdam awesome the netherlands love it great country anyway friend it was good to talk to you and uh, until next time thank you talk to you soon Visit libertynextile.com.